somewhere in a remote, uncharted region of a planet called Earth. Greetings, my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. Tales from the Silent Planet. Welcome to Tales from the Silent Planet. I am one of your hosts, Daniel Schultz. And I am your other host, Nick Wells. So, last week we talked about the book Dawn of Wonder by Jonathan Rinshaw, which we had both read and enjoyed. And this week, I think our primary topic is going to be writing in general. Last week we kind of talked about uh, Jonathan Rinshaw, who's self-published, and we commented some on what we thought were good aspects of the book as far as the writing went. So, what do you think is the most important thing about writing. Yeah, the most important thing about writing, I think that's a really, really big <laughs> question. It's probably writing itself. But Yeah, uh, it is probably just the ability to get words on paper uh, well at that. But I think what makes a story great for me is the ability beyond like the author's need to understand grammar and sentence structure and to string dialogue together and things like that. I think that a me personally, I can live with a semi-poor plot. I can live with a semi-poor world, even though I don't want to do either of those things. But for me, what really gets me into a book is the characters and their motivation. So if you can develop a really good character and a really, really annoying enemy or, you know, antagonist that you're really just going to dislike, I really like authors that can do that so i think for me that is probably what i appreciate most in an author beyond their natural and practiced ability to write what about you well i i agree i think characterization is the key to a good book sometimes plot is you know reign supreme last week we talked about sort of two books on the opposite spectrum i mentioned my favorite science fiction book which is jurassic park and we also mentioned uh, Patrick Rothfuss, who's written the uh, Kingkiller Chronicles. And I think those are sort of the two extremes. You have one where the characters are really fleshed out, especially the main character in Rothfuss's books. And then on the other side, you have really what is a book that's based around a central idea. And the characters are kind of secondary to this main idea of dinosaurs existing in the modern day right and while those are both good there is a level of depth that you get when you have a book that's more of a character study like patrick rothfuss's books yeah absolutely and uh the book that i talked about in in the episode that i recorded solo 
uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It's actually a short story. It's by Irving Washington. I think I said his name backwards last time, so I apologize. But um, it's only an hour and 16 minutes long on audiobook. And it's really great because he, one thing I talked about was Irving Washington's ability, or rather Washington Irving's ability to just make a good character out of a very brief couple sentences. Because you have a lot of characters in the book who don't really get developed a ton because you just don't have the time in a short work like that. But I think a really good author has a way of making even um, a character who's only mentioned for a few sentences, you know, that author, if they're really good, can make them seem real and come to life just through, you know, those few short sentences where they uh, describe them and, and, uh, you know, introduce them to you. Yeah, I'm kind of excited to actually read Sleepy Hollow. I remember as a kid watching the old Disney cartoon, or at least parts of it, and just being like totally freaked out. I was not a fan of scary things as a child, and I'm still not to a big degree, but the just the images and the ideas from that are something that stuck with me. But I'm excited to, to, to go in and read it, especially after listening to your uh, mini review, your little book report about it. It's it's yeah. interesting. We we both picked books that I don't think the other one would have thought we would pick for our little book reports this last week. The the one I picked, One Day in Life of in, of Ivan Denisovich, is this novella that is writ, was written in like the nineteen sixties. And it is about a guy in a Russian prison in, like, Siberia. And it's just about, like, one day in his life, and not much happens, but it is back to characterization. Like, the characters seem real, and you feel for these people that have been wrongly imprisoned. And that book has been super influential to me. There was a few years ago, I went to a book fair, and this book fair, particular book fair, usually has a lot of famous authors, a lot of fantasy authors and stuff that comes to it. Uh, Scott Lynch, who writes the uh, Lies of Locke Lamora and the other Locke Lamora books, was there the last time I went. And then the time before that, Brandon Sanderson was there. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, and I so I, I went and listened to, to uh, them and the panels they were on and stuff. But I actually went to our local used bookstore and bought... One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich for him. And I took it that as well as a John Piper book, actually, and uh, <laughs> and gave it to him. And that's Brandon Sanderson? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, and it's just the... I know that that book was influential to me, and I was like, well, if I'm going to give this author something, you know, he's been... I've liked his books, read a lot of them. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. For those of you that don't know, Brandon Sanderson is actually a Mormon. So um, it's I think it's great that you actually gave him a John Piper book. Yeah, I was I was planning on actually giving him uh, James White's book, Letters to a Mormon Elder. But there wasn't <laughs> enough time to actually get one in. And yeah. I was like, oh, what can I give him? And there was the a John Piper book. I forget that whole title but it's basically about why jesus came to die and it goes through the gospel in a great 
amount of detail. And so I, I bought that for him. And uh, it was interesting giving it to him because he, he saw the first book. He saw One Day in Life of Ivan Denisovich, and then he saw the other one, and he didn't really comment on it. He was kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> it was funny. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it was, that, that book has been super influential to me. And I read that my senior year in high school. And that year we had read these so-called classics like Siddhartha and Heart of Darkness and stuff. In those books, we had to, you know, go through them and, and write in the margins and all that stuff and analyze them. And then I read this book. I found it on my parents' bookshelf. I just picked it up and read it. My brother read it first and said, oh, you should read this. And I read it and it was amazing. And it it meant so much more to me than this stuff we had to like overanalyze and critique and it's been my favorite novel since that time. I think that it is, you know, I think it's one of the best things ever written. That's great. Yeah. And actually, um, when I was listening to your review of it, have you ever read uh, Victor Frankl's uh, book, Man's Search for Meaning? No, I haven't. So are you, do you know, have you ever heard of it before? I have not, no. So Victor Frankl, I believe, it's been a while, um, he was a Jew who was in an internment camp, and um, you know it's a little bit different from Night by Ali Weasel or Weisel, however you say it, because mm-hmm. uh, he, I think he was more of like a psychologist or a psychotherapist, and so he has kind of a unique perspective, and he survived, and he kind of talks about, you know, his daily experience in the internment camps from from more of a psychological perspective, and he just kind of talks about how you lived to survive and just uh the overlap of like somebody who's trying to just work in in and work hard in the midst of adversity with you know not really a whole lot of chance for hope um just because you know that the situation you're in is so almost hopeless mm. but yeah like you said because it just your book the book that uh, you had reviewed it was just like one day right yeah it's just one day because i'd never heard of that book before so it, it really kind of piqued my interest yeah, I think I, I don't know what I, I saw in the book as a, a senior in high school. Maybe I was just pretentious, but now I kind of <laughs> think of it in light of in light of bringing glory to God. And I think that means a lot to me that this book where even in a dire situation and the, the main character is not really a religious character and there's some sense that just doing things well and not not allowing this terrible situation or this sinful world to kind of dictate how you're going to act. There's a character in the book that has sort of devolved in a sense in the prison and is looked down upon because he basically lives, you know, licks other people's bowls and stuff after they're done. And he'll, he'll, like, scavenge, like, little bits of food and things. And people look at him like this this animal because he's forgotten what it means to be human and to, right. like, work and, and do things well. And I don't know. It's just a book that has stuck with me. And I, I haven't read it in a while, but I, I think I will go back and read it um, yeah. again. Well, one thing you just said really reminded me of a book that I have been reading uh, this week. I just picked it up today or I've been listening to today uh ender's game it was a book that you actually recommended to me and 
only gotten through about an hour and 15 minutes of it. But um, like you said, you know, he just kind of devolved to the subhuman level where he was trying to survive in uh, in the book when he is confronted by a group of bullies in the beginning kind of has a similar type situation where he has a moral conflict where he's like okay nobody's watching me you know do i fight these guys and take him and take take the leader down and then get in a big fight tomorrow or do i not fight him but he couldn't really avoid the fight so he ended up knocking the main the main uh, bad guy, like the, the big kid down, small antagonist, if you will. And uh, then he's like, well, if I just leave it as is right now, he's just going to come at me with all his friends and they're all going to beat me up. But if I brutalize him and, and I beat him up while he's down and he talks about the social niceties of, you know, never kick a guy when he's down. But instead he walks over and he starts to kick the kid. They're, they're all kids, by the way. But uh, he starts to kick the kid into, like, a bloody pulp and kind of hosp- hospitalizes him. Just kind of reminded me of that because he felt he needed to do that to protect himself in the future because uh, he didn't want anybody to even get near him or want to fight him. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to hear, because you're sort of, you're reading this book right now and you kind of keep me apprised of where you're at and your reactions and stuff, which... We've done now for a couple of different books where we're reading it. If the other person has read it, we'll sort of have this running commentary uh, with each other about our reactions to certain things. And I'm in, I'm really excited to see what you think of the development of the book. But I'll, I, we, we probably shouldn't talk too much about it because you're so you're just not too far into the book. So that's that is true. Yes. Well, another book that we both read this well I think I read it last week and you read it this week was actually a book about writing and it's Stephen King's book on writing yeah yeah really great book Uh, it was a great recommendation we were starting to talk about it because of National Novel Writing Month which we'll get to a little bit later in the episode here but um, I am a fledgling writer Daniel is much more experienced than I am so um uh, I asked him for a book to rec- that uh, he could recommend for me, and uh, this book really just knocked it out of the park in a lot of ways. And so I think it, uh, it'd be good to talk about that for a little bit. Like I said, I read it a week ago, and it already like I knew about it, and I'd read some little snippets from it and stuff, but the book itself, I I didn't really know what to expect when I when I read it, but it really has made an impact on my writing just since last week and it's kind of motivated me as we've started this week of writing but what were some of the things about it for you that really have uh, opened your eyes or made you think about writing in a different way so two of the things that he hates 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 are adverbs and the passive voice both of which I am uh, very very guilty of I've become much more self-conscious about adverbs and trying to avoid the passive voice. But my problem with that is I have to consciously think about it because it's, it's not something I learned as a kid. Um, but other than, you know, those two things, I really I really like the one the one uh, bit that he said there. Let me see. I think I uh, saved it as a quote somewhere. Hold on a second here. 
while you're looking for that, I I just I was remembering about where I first heard about this book, and it was actually in a Roger Ebert review of an adaption of one of Stephen King's works, and he said this. A lot of people were outraged that he was honored, speaking of Stephen King, that he was honored at the National Book Awards as if a popular writer could not be taken seriously. But after finding that his book on writing had more useful and observant things to say about the craft than any book since Strunk and White's The Elements of Style, I have gotten over my own snobbery. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I for some reason, like, I have never read any other Stephen King books. I like I said, I don't really watch or read horror all that much, but for some reason I saw that review and Roger Ebert's words there stuck in my mind. And then recently I have some friends who are big Stephen King guys and I said, well, I, I think I'll give his on writing book a chance and it it was worth it. But yeah. the, the book that Roger, the other book that Roger Ebert mentioned is called The Elements of Style. That is a book that has been around since early 20th century and is considered this basically the be-all end-all when it comes to a lot of people's opinions about writing and prose and stuff like that. So it was a high compliment that he was paying to Stephen King. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's a big, pretty big praise. So I had two quotes that I say. I have a few thoughts, but one of the quotes was this. And one of the cardinal rules of good fiction is never tell us a thing if you can show us instead. And he, end quote, and he talked a lot about that. Um, like one of the things he said was that the the reader likes to work when they read. So like when you get a description of a character, you like to have some freedom to mentally create a picture of them uh you're kind of working alongside the writer to visualize the story so like when if the author gave you a inch by inch treatise on what that person looked like and was wearing and every little detail that you could possibly fit in that would just be a couple pages of boring description you know but instead he I think the example he gave was, you know, if you're talking about, um, you know, a high school cheerleader, you know, just kind of give some very, you know, bare bones descriptors for her that are very vague and you can kind of make your own and allow the reader to create the picture. And then the reader gets more engaged in the story, which is something I thought was interesting because as the reader, you think you don't really think of yourself as being the active participant in uh, in that process. You you know, at least I thought I was more passive, but the more I thought about what he said, the more he was right. You know, I don't like it when an author forces an image upon me that I can't really understand because it was, you know, something they saw in their head. No, if they just give me a general description about somebody that I can fill in, that's something that is much more enjoyable to me. Yeah, there's a, there's a part in the book where he talks about writing as if it's you telepathically putting information in someone's head. Yes. And the the point isn't that you're giving them this exact image. There's this trope in books where a character will look into some reflective surface and comment on their self and the way they look so that you have this exact picture of how somebody is going to look. But 
a lot of times there will be a book and I've imagined a character a certain way and that'll happen and then it just takes me right out of the story. And that's sort of, I think, what he's saying is that your imagination is just as big a part as whatever you write on the page. And one of the ways that I think that that is impacting my work in the last week and some of the stuff I've done in the past is if you just provide like this metaphor or a simile comparing something to other thing that might not be related to it but gives an idea or an impression of what you're describing that's sometimes better than just going into a like a super huge amount of detail about every like nook and cranny of something right i think he was talking about one of his own projects it may have been some other author but he took like five pages to describe something and he he, he was talking about how his wife is like his first editor the first person he goes to for something and she was just like, I really don't think that you need this much detail about this specific thing. He bristled and he kind of fought against it, but ultimately she was right. Description's hard because you you want to have the reader understand what you're saying to, to make sure they understand the story. But at the same time, if you get overly descriptive, it's just uninteresting and you lose your readers. So... Description is a very fine line that you walk on. Yeah, I think it's all—it's a skill that definitely is something you acquire. There is some natural ability, and Stephen King talks about this, like there's a natural ability that people have to be writers, and they can learn to hone that skill, but if people don't have it, basically he says they're, not, they're never going to be good writers. And... Yeah. That, not gonna lie, that part made me really sad. I, I don't think I'm a great writer. I'm just like, what am I even doing here? But uh, but it's good either way. So, yeah. and I th- I think one of the things he's talking about when he's talking about that, at least that was my impression, was that he's talking about people that want to write will write. And Neil Gaiman, who's you know a fantasy author, comic book writer, he has said things like, "Go write," like you don't. You know, one of the best tip for writing is just go write. I've heard that quite a bit from a lot of people, but the idea is that people that that want to write will write no matter what. You know, even if they don't get published or they don't meet this, you know, give this huge critical acclaim or popular success, they they keep on trying. Right. Well, and the the thing about that too is even with Brandon Sanderson, I think he released. I think he tried to get five novels published before he got Elantris published. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, it, was, it was five or seven. I can't remember. It was an odd number. I know that. But he, he wrote a bunch of these novels, and he had submitted some other ones, and Elantris was sitting on the the editor that eventually bought the book's desk for like a really long time, and he didn't have the right contact information for Brandon Sanderson, so he had to... <laughs> were actually work to get a hold of him and then he, he bought the book yeah but uh, one of his his trunk novels as they call it is you know just refers to a book that you have st- sort of stashed stashed away he's adapted it into a comic book and it's called White Sand and the first I don't know if I think the first graphic novel came out this last summer I have not read it yet but I'd like to get it at some point 
And which author was that? That was Brandon Sanderson. Oh, was that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that you sort of mentioned about Stephen King's book was he where he was talking about like a, a special area or a special room that you set aside and that's where you write. What was it about that idea that that st- stood out to you? Probably uh, the fact that I have no such room and I would love one. But right now I am sitting at my desk in the kind of half room off of my living area um, in my room against one wall. You have three large whiteboards. You have a small bookshelf in my computer desk with my computer and recording equipment. Behind me is a sewing table with a sewing machine, kind of like a crafty bin area thing. And then there is a even smaller desk with two small pink chairs for my daughter where she does school because we are homeschooling. So we have one room kind of fulfills three purposes. And I was just thinking to myself, man, I would love to have this be like a quiet room where I could do work. But uh, for me, if I want to get any real writing done, I kind of have to take a trip over to Tim Hortons or Starbucks because I just need to have somewhere that doesn't have a lot of um, loud noises. And a coffee shop is much quieter than my house if my daughters are awake. And they're great. And I love them. And that's not a mean thing I'm saying. It's just it's really hard to write when they're trying to get your attention and you want to spend time with them. So. Yeah. And King actually spoke about that in his book where he was talking about his interaction with his family and, and he sort of mentioned similar things to that, as I recall. Yeah. And the one thing too is King, you know, King was not, I'm probably in a better financial position than King was when he, cause I think he lived in like a mobile home and yeah, he, he used did. to, yeah, and he used to write like back in the laundry area. Like, I don't. I I just have this mental image of him sitting on his washing machine with a little typewriter, just typing away uh, with crazy hair, like a mad scientist at his uh, at his workbench. But you know, so it doesn't have to be anything grandiose. It's just, and that certainly wasn't exclusive to him. But I don't know. Yeah, and what about you? Well, I my writing area, my desk is actually it was my wife's desk and we got rid of my desk we gave it to my brother but this desk is ginormous i call it my battle desk because it is ridiculously huge like i have a 32 inch monitor on it a printer my 27 inch mac and then i have room to put my laptop on there and have all kinds of books and pictures and like whatever I want on this desk, it is ginormous. And we have, in our house, we have a room that's essentially empty. And I wanted to put this desk in there so that it would be a nice quiet area. I wasn't going to put my computer in there. I was just going to have an area to sort of study and read and things. And the desk wouldn't fit through the door. <laughs> That's how huge it was. We could get it into the house, and so we put it in our living room, and it's sort of its own little area. No one really comes back here but but me, but it's like behind our couch. So it, it's almost like another room, but it's not quite like 
like the idea of having this room that you close. And he talked about this, how you close the door, you write the book, and then you that then you open the door, and that's when you let people come and read your work and critique it. And he was talking lit, both literally and metaphorically about the writing process in that way. And that was one of the interesting parts, because didn't he say he lets that sit for like three months or four months before he even lets anybody look at it? I recall him saying something about that, yeah. Because he he just basically said, you know, it's really hard. He didn't call it his baby, but basically he was saying, you know, it's really hard to have somebody take something that you poured yourself into, that you loved, that is fresh, mm-hmm. and, you know, start tearing it apart. And not in a mean way, but just like in an editorial way, you know, hey, this, this isn't that great, or this isn't that great, or this could be described better, or this character's motivation doesn't make sense. So he recommends working on another project for yeah. a while so that you kind of distance yourself from it so that when you do come back to it, it's more objective and uh, it makes the editing process easier, which makes a lot of sense, I think. Yeah, I I know from my own experience, I have done a lot of short story writing, studied it at, in college. And one of the things that I have just learned from experience is that something I thought was this masterpiece, I'll go back later. And I mean, a lot of, like my teacher loved it. I loved it. Uh, The people that read it and critiqued it in the class that was taking loved it. And I'll go back and be like, oh man, this is total garbage. This (laughs) is bad. And that's that's sort of what he was talking about, is you, you leave something that you're in love with, this book that you poured everything into, this story, and then you come back and you're able to be sort of objective about it and say, oh, man, this needs a lot of revision. And there is some sort of separation that that happens when you come back to a piece after a long time. Now, um, one thing I will say about this book, because you read it on paper and uh, I listened to it via Audible. No, I, I actually let it, listened to it on Audible as well. Uh, OK, you did. So yeah. you had uh, you had the privilege of listening to Stephen King narrated himself. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, for any of you who appreciate an audiobook, um, Stephen King just has this, I would just call it an awkward charismaticism about himself. Um, he's certainly not afraid to use vulgarity, so uh, if you're faint of heart, sorry. But um, he's just a fantastic narrator. I really, really enjoyed hearing the guy who wrote it talk about it in just a very... It kind of felt like you were sitting with him across the table and he was just having this conversation with you, which uh, is just a great quality. Uh, So if you want to pick it up and uh, you're interested in the book, I would recommend checking out the sample on Audible. It's definitely worth a credit. Yeah, there was... After listening to that, I was excited to read his other book. uh, There's one about horror writing or horror in general. And it's called Dance Macabre. And it, and so I looked it up on Audible and I was like, oh yeah, man, I'm going to get this. And it wasn't read by him. And so I just went and got the paperback. I was like, no way, I'm not reading this. There's something about an author reading their own work. And Neil Gaiman is a guy that reads, I think, pretty much all of his books for the audiobook edition. And, you know, he's not as great as some, but he has this, this quality where he knows the work and he's, you know, he's pretty proficient and he's able to 
kind of wow you because you're like, man, this is the actual author reading me the book, and there's something different about that, I think. We, we talked about the uh, secret space, and I was reminded about uh, Patrick Rothfuss, who actually bought a second house that he goes yes. and he works at, and uh, he doesn't have internet, and he, he basically bought a house so he wouldn't be distracted. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, that was pretty excessive, but cool. He is intense. Like if you've, I've watched a number of interviews with him, and I don't know anybody who who is quite like him. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but he has an interview where he uh, is just talking about his writing process, and he's like, "Yeah, I have this room in my house. Nobody goes in it but me. My, you know, nobody. You can't go in it, but I'll show you what I do when I go on the road." And so he pulls out this like old school big keyboard. I forget his reasoning, but he was just like, you know, you need to have I don't know if he said character to the keyboard or whatever, but, um, you know, he attaches it to his laptop with a USB cable and just writes. And um, it's great because Stephen King, when he talks about it in his book, he's like, yeah, you know, I'll put on like ACDC and just blast it and I'll write. And Patrick Rothfuss in his interviews, uh, somebody said, hey, you know, do you do you listen to music when you write or should people listen to music when they read? He gave the example, he's like, you know, imagine you were doing some, you know, hyper intensive thing on your computer that required all of your computer's efficiencies to do it and then try to run Photoshop in the background and Photoshop being the music. And he's just like, I just don't think you can do that well and produce good work or understand anything well. So interesting because they are both phenomenal writers, but they just approach that in uh, such a different, different way. Um, but what, how do you write? Do you, uh, do you ever write with music on or are you more of a uh, solitude, silent kind of guy? Uh, it really depends. Uh, most of the time I can't listen to music that has a lot of lyrics. Uh, I'll listen to classical music or instrumental music. And then sometimes I'll put on something like Bob Dylan and it'll just fade into the background and I'll get into it. And then I'll turn off the Bob Dylan and say, oh, I'll turn this back on in a second while I'm checking on something, and then I come back and totally forget that I was listening to music and go on. So it's really, it really varies for me. Sometimes it really does distract me, and sometimes it, I think, helps me, sort of gets me in a rhythm where I'm, where ideas are flowing as the music is playing. It's kind of a, a weird relationship. No, that makes sense. I, I understand what you mean. Have you lis- tried that, listening to music while you write? Yeah, so when I used to write... I used to have a blog where I would just, it was about apologetics. And so I used to listen to a lot of classical. Um, I actually had a, had a, have a Spotify playlist, Christmas jazz, uh, it's instrumental. And I used to just listen to that. It didn't matter what time of year it was. It just really helped me write for whatever reason. Now that I haven't been doing that so much and I've just trying to been writing in general, um, it, it kind of varies. I find that if I'm really needing to focus I just, uh, you know, just keep it quiet, and that helps me a lot. But if it's something where it's just kind of like flowing out of me naturally, I really like to listen to music that kind of fits the tone of what I'm writing. So basically, um, for me, have you ever heard of, uh, her name is Sarah Jarose. She's kind of like a uh, neo-bluegrass type artist. No, I haven't. Yeah, she's real good if you like that kind of music. Anything like Nickel Creek or Allison Krauss. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
she just has some really great kind of slow, almost haunting uh, music. She has one song called Annabelle Lee that is based off um, the work by Poe that I would highly recommend you look up if you are interested in something like that. So, you know, for me, I, I like to listen to music that kind of fits what I'm writing if I'm going to listen to anything or, or instrumental Christmas music. Yeah, so it sounds like we're similar in that way. Yeah. Now, was there anything else about on writing that uh, that has inspired you or made you think differently about what you're trying to do with your writing? Yeah. Yeah, I. there are a few things. Um, the one thing that kind of caught my attention really well was that he always carries a book on him he's like you know if you're in the line anywhere or if you're you know just standing around waiting for something just pull your book out and read for five minutes and he kind of talks about learning to be okay with reading in small increments because for me it's like you know if i can't sit down and read for a half hour or listen for a half hour i'm just not going to do it i'm just going to stand around and play something on my phone or just do something that's not productive King, you know, just kind of makes the point, you know, take those small times and kind of redeem them, use them to be productive. Now, you don't just have to read to be productive, but uh, in this context, you know, that's what he was talking about. And I think that's really good advice. I think that I'm just lazy when I don't want to read for five minutes, you know, for whatever reason. So that's something that I kind of took pretty seriously. Uh, and he also talked about not wanting to be another writer. So like for an aspiring writer, don't write, you know, in the style of Stephen King, Brandon Sanderson, whoever, uh, because you're just, I, I forget exactly what his rationale was, but when you're trying to imitate another writer like that, a, you can't do it because you're not them and you don't have their style. And B, I think he also said that, you know, you're not really going to allow the readers to, see your writing for what it is they're going to hold you up to another standard um, at least that makes sense to me if you didn't say it and you're almost just setting yourself up for kind of failure I get the idea of wanting to be associated with another name but at the same time probably going to come back to bite you as opposed to help you and it's funny you mentioned Brandon Sanderson because he's struggled with that uh, to some degree in his career because early on he got tasked with actually finishing another author's series, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time books. Yeah. And so he sort of, he had to think about that and he ta he's talked in some different places about saying like, you know, is this going to, going to be detrimental to my career or is it going to, to benefit it? You know, will I be only ever compared to Robert Jordan or will I be able to go and do my own thing? And even on his big series that he's putting out now that he's working on the stormlight archive yep. there i think on this at least on the second book i believe it mentions like in the grand tradition of robert jordan and so even though this is his big series it is uh, it's still <laughs> comparing him to and I, I don't think he's too much in his shadow he's been able to to sort of forge his own path but it still is there too yeah well my friends that have read not you um, we've never talked about it, but my other friends who have read the series, you know, have actually said they, they liked Sanderson better. So 
at the, least the from Robert there. Jordan. What's that? Then Robert Jordan. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I've. I'm not. Robert Jordan's one of those authors where the people that really love him, they're fanatic, See, and then everybody else is just kind of like meh. So I just offended a bunch of people, is what you're saying? Yeah, inevitably will offend people, <laughs> but yeah, I I've read. So I read the first book in the Wheel of Time series, and I actually have all but one of them, and I plan on reading them because they are such a big part of the fantasy uh, tradition of the last 30 years. But they, I read the first book, and beginning I was really excited, and then I got about halfway through the book, and it was sort of falling off for me. I wasn't into it. And then I finally finished it, and the last one, and sort of the ending, it was... I was kind of, I kind of read it rushed and I didn't pay as much attention to that. I find that sometimes I'll be reading something and thinking about something at the same time and that's how I know I don't really like a book all that much because I'm not paying attention to it as I'm reading it. But I was motivated enough to go and get the second the second one and halfway through that book I was so fed up with the stupidity of the characters that I I literally took it and sold it to the <laughs> the local used bookstore and got something else. It was, yeah, it was not for me. But I have since finished that book and I'm on the third one. So I, I gave it, I'm giving it a a second chance and I will eventually read them all, hopefully. But How many are there? I think it's like 15, 14, 15, something around there. I wow. think I think that yeah, I think Robert Jordan wrote the first 12, and then Brandon Sanderson wrote the last three, if I'm right. Yeah. So Robert Jordan, there was a time where he was putting out one of these giant books every year. Sort of near, near the end, people thought that he had dipped in quality, that they was just getting kind of stuck in the story a little bit, but I wouldn't know because I haven't gotten there yet. That is, uh, that's a lot of... It's a lot of words. Yeah, and it, I think it originally started out as a trilogy, and there's this this joke about that I've seen a couple of people quote, but Robert Jordan said that it was like Tolkien, the story grew in the telling of it. So he was just writing a sequel to The Hobbit, Tolkien was, and then he wrote The Lord of the Rings, which is this big, huge, giant, sprawling thing. And Robert Jordan had sold The Wheel of Time as a trilogy, and then it's, now it's like 15 books. So he, uh, yeah, the story grew in the telling is the, what often happens to people. I've seen that happen to a lot of books where it's like a trilogy and then you find out there's a fourth and then maybe a fifth and not usually, but sometimes a 15th. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, we were talking about Patrick Rothfuss's books, I think. I don't know how he's going to wrap everything up in a third book. He says he's going to do it, but... And not only that, but he's saying he's taking... It, it's taking as much time as it is because he wants to cut out, like, 100,000 words, and he wants to make it shorter. It's like, how in the world are you going to condense... I mean, I feel like you need a 60-hour audiobook to really get through all the information that that we have, because... I don't know about you, but by the end of the second book, I'm like, you know, I was talking to some of my other friends about this, and I was just like, man, I feel like I know less now than I did when I started this book, um, just about so much. Yeah, but like, yeah, I know what you mean. There's, there's a part in the, 
when he first starts telling the story in the first book, and he mentions some of the things he's known for, and there was all this speculation before the second book came out that, oh, this is where, in the second book, this is going to happen because he's got to do this. And, like, the vast majority of that stuff that's mentioned that he did has not happened yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, I... It's kind of crazy. I don't... You know what I thought was really funny, just to kind of jump back for a second here, um, hashtag spoiler alert, but um, there was a part where in the first book, I think it was in the first book, where he's uh, retelling the story of his life, and he just kind of skips over a whole portion. Like, it's made out to be this big deal in the books where it's like, oh, you know, Kvothe did this awesome thing. He learned a language in two days or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's probably a week or something. But and uh, in in the story, he just kind of when he's telling um, the the bard almost, if you will, about the story because the bard wants to know what happened in his life. He's just kind of like, yeah, you know, if you want information about that, just go read about it. I'm not going to tell you about it here. And he just kind of like skips over it. And it's like, man, I want to know what happened in that in that part of the story and I'm never going to know. It's just always going to be left to my imagination. Yeah. That that sort of thing where an author hints at something and then just never tells you what's going to happen makes a world feel super rich. And there was some lectures that you had actually uh, were going to listen to and I looked up the same the same professor who was doing that lecture and he was talking about why Tolkien's world seems so real when compared to a lot of other things. And it was really interesting where he mentioned, or that was one of the things he talked about was that people would mention something offhand, but everyone in the book sort of like knew what they were talking about. And there's things that just don't appear. And like Tolkien wrote all this information about that world. And there's just this vast, they, they are putting out a new book I don't know if it came out or if it's going to come out, but like a new book that has been, you know, edited from his notes that they're going to put out this year. And he died in like the 1960s or 70s or something. So it's kind of crazy. But there's stuff that is mentioned in Lord of the Rings that aren't in any of those books. And no one has any idea what what they are. Yeah, that's awesome. It's awesome that you can have such a well-developed, well-developed world that you can just kind of make an offhanded remark about it and have the characters be totally cool with it and have you wanting more information, but you don't need more information. So I don't know that. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Well, we're kind of getting towards the, the end of our podcast, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about was some of the upcoming book releases and it actually ties into something else I, I thought we could talk about, which you already talked about what you're reading this week, which is Ender's Game you started. And I'm actually reading the third book in the Expanse series by James S.A. Corey. That's actually two writers, Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. And they write that series together. And it's a, a science fiction series where it's set just within our solar system. And... It's, uh, it's pretty interesting. There's a, an alien menace that comes, and that's all I'll say so that I won't give away too much. But it's not the traditional alien menace that you would think. And uh, yeah, I'm on the third book, and I'm really enjoying that 
But the next book in the series, which I think might be like the fifth or sixth, might even be the seventh book, is uh, Babylon's Ashes, and that came out on November 1st. So I, I really need to uh, find more time to read or stop getting sucked into new series because I'm so far behind on this one that, and you know, everything that I read, I kind of really should uh, curb my interest in these series because I just get snatched up in a new one every, it seems like every week I'm starting a new series or something. Yeah, it's uh, it's easy to do that because there are so many good books and only so many hours in a day. Yeah, for sure. Now, have you heard of the Dresden Files? Yes. Um, who wrote them? Jim Butcher is the guy that is the uh, author of those. I've heard of it, but I have never. I don't own them, and I haven't read them. All right, so I've read the first the first couple. And uh, they're pretty good. It's basically, it's an urban fantasy where a guy is living in modern-day Chicago and fights werewolves and ghosts and vampires and stuff. And it's, it's, it's really good. And that book is also up in, like, the 15, 16 book range, but they're a lot shorter than, than a Robert Jordan book. But he edited an anthology that's coming out or uh, that came out on November 1st, actually, and it's called Shadowed Souls, and it also features some other uh, you know, pretty famous writers. Jim C. Hines is a guy that's written a lot of books that's pretty well-known, and then uh, Seanan McGuire, she actually writes under that her real name, and then also there's like some pseudonyms, and it's kind of crazy how many books these people put out, but my wife reads her books, so... That looked interesting when I was looking over the upcoming books, and I might have to to see about getting that for my wife and then really just get it for myself so I can read Jim Butcher. Yeah, right. And then another interesting one is Brandon Sanderson is actually releasing a collection of short stories, and these are all set within the same universe. So a lot of Brandon Sanderson's works actually tie into this big, grand narrative that stretches over almost all of his books and they all exist within the same world and then eventually when he's done writing a lot of these works he's going to write this big culmination of the entire series and that is really similar to Stephen King because Stephen King sort of did that with his Dark Tower books so Brandon Sanderson uh, because he didn't release the next book in his Stormlight Archive he's actually wrote a a shorter work in it and is releasing all the short fiction that he's published set within that universe. And that's called Arcanium Unbounded, the Cosmere Collection, which is a pretty epic name. Yes, it is. I, uh, I too, saw that. I follow him on Facebook. So I, uh, I've only, I'm, I'm only on my first book by him so far, um, and it's The Way of Kings, which you cautioned me not to make. I did. You cautioned me not to make it my first book. And the guys I work with were like, oh, you got to read that. And, you know, definitely jump into that first. And um, sadly, I, I followed their advice. And it's um, I think you said it was almost more of like setting up the world. So yeah. there's not is um, it's not is I don't want to say interesting because it is very interesting. It's very good, but it's not not like his other works. So I might actually just jump it back into uh, something else by him, like Elantris or even um, 
not the storm. These are the Stormlight Archives. What's Mistborn. the other one? You're... Mistborn. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I so when I first started reading fantasy, I bought The Way of Kings. It was one of the first books that I bought, and I was really excited to read it. The cover looks epic, and I was like, man, this is everything that I thought fantasy was going to be. And I started reading the uh, the prelude. So there's a prelude to this book, which is set like thousands of years before you know the time frame where the book is actually taking place. And it was pretty epic. And I was like, man, this is cool. And then I turned the page, and there's a prologue. And I was, and I started reading that, and I got about halfway through that, and I, I just about gave up fantasy. It is like super dense, and I was just not ready for it. And it's, I mean, I've gone back and I enjoyed it, and it was, you know, it's a good book. And I think the world building is really good, and I'm interested to see where the story goes. But it is not a plot heavy book, and it is still like over a thousand pages, which is incredible that he could write something like that. But yeah, I I recommended that, and uh, I guess I was right. You were you were one hundred percent right, and I will uh, never doubt you again. <laughs> no, I, I think you should doubt just about everything else yeah. I say. But yeah, so that that I'm looking. I think I will try to get a hold of that uh, sh- collection of his short stories because there's I want to read those because this idea of this collective universe that all his stories take place in really intrigues me and. I uh, want to, see. and also one of the things that was interesting about that that I saw when he was talking about it on his website was that each of the stories actually has, you know, each of the worlds that these stories take place in. In this book that he was releasing, it shows like maps of like the planet and the star systems, the solar systems, and everything, and then there's also a in universe story or essay written by like a, a character in the universe about each of the worlds so that seemed really really interesting and is also insane the amount of work that that has to be to keep all of those things together not to mention how many how many books he pumps out in a year i mean it's pretty impressive considering the breadth of the work that he does uh, that he is able to do all that. Yeah, and he, he, he writes at like this consistent level. And I have read a lot of his novellas and shorter books that aren't set within that universe, and they are they are just as good. Like his book, uh, his novellas, his Legion novellas are really interesting, and uh, it's also one, The Emperor's Soul, which actually is set within that universe that was really good, too. Uh, and speaking of his novellas, there's actually another one that's coming out in February from um, a small book publisher, and it is they're doing like a limited edition, which will be like signed and numbered and everything, and that's called Snapshot, and it's about a cop, and in this world, they basically can create a snapshot of a specific day. And then the experiences that people have and what they do are real for one day within this snapshot thing, which I don't really fully understand, but it sounds really cool. And yeah, that's coming out in February, so. Now you said that's only going to have so many copies? 
Yeah, so that's going to be the limited edition. And with a lot of the stuff that he releases as a limited edition, he did it with his Legion books, which I have, they will do a limited edition, which comes out in a nice cover and a signed number and everything. And then later he'll publish it as in sort of a paperback or a, a not as fancy uh, format and so that people can read it outside of those limited editions. Yeah, so that is basically the episode. Is there anything else you wanted to add to our discussion today? No, uh, I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen. On the upcoming weeks, we're going to start asking questions and uh, starting to get more interactive with you guys. So so uh, we're looking forward to that. But um, if you have any recommendations for us, any books you want us to read and talk about, just let us know. We'd love to do that. Uh, we don't exclusively we exclusively read science, fantasy, and fiction, so anything in the spectrum is really okay. Just uh, I'll, I'll, I'll run for the horror books to spare Daniel there because he's not really into that. I think that's it. Yeah, all right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see you guys next time.